Welcome to Making Home Happen, a podcast where we discuss everything that makes home happen. I'm your host, Martin Blair. Today in the studio, we have Nick with the Nick Ratliff Realty Team. So starting off, tell me a little bit about you. How long have you been in you know, this industry and you know, what got you into it? All that. So I got into it in 2004. So we're going on 19 years at this point. I was 25 years old and had gone to college for uh, electrical engineering. Pat was practicing that. Okay. But I came from a family of builders, contractors, and always had that heart for home. I wanted to be an architect. I didn't have that skill set. So I went into engineering. And so I kind of circled back um, and actually began it all with building a spec home. So I built a spec home, really enjoyed it, got my license while I was doing that. So I was one of my, I don't know, first 10 or 20 clients, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and actually built a house, sold it, ended up building eight homes total before the market crashed and did all that and went back to get my MBA and achieved that and started to go into finance. And the guy asked me why I'd quit doing what I was doing. And I kind of left there and went, I have no clue. And like, I love what I do. So I was just looking for a new job because I'd got a new degree. So. You know, whenever you have that degree in hand, you want to use it. You want to feel like it wasn't a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But you know, my degree was in economics. And economics, even though it sounds like it's you know very mathematical, which it is, it's technically a philosophy degree. You go at it, you know, I want to get the most bang for my buck. Or something to that effect. That is economics. And you can apply that to everything from sports all the way down to the environment. Ultimately, you know, you know am I making the best economical decisions? Yeah. So for me, it was a way to get a degree in common sense I could use for pretty much anything. No. And without it, I can say I would be lacking for sure. Um, so I can I can see how getting, a, you know, you know your... Um, additional degrees and whatnot, yeah. if anything else, if nothing else, just kind of expands your horizon on you know, the services you can get. Oh, it definitely affects how I do my job, right? Like my engineering side brings a very analytical um, approach to things. The business side bring you know focuses on the investment. And when you combine the two, you can generally offer people a view of home ownership that they don't look at, mm-hmm. right? Because most people look at a house and while, yes, it built wealth, it does all that stuff, what they're really looking at is, can I have my friends over? My kid's going to grow up here, those kind of things. Right. And having those different perspectives, I think, is what really gains value to any perspective new home buyer. You know, anyone, I think, can show a house. Anyone can say, you know, be Vanna White and just, you know, who look at this, who look at that. Oh, it's a great buy. It's different whenever you dig into how is this going to affect you, affect you in a lot of different angles like mm-hmm. monetarily uh ultimately you know can you grow old in this house without it breaking you or you know, vice versa you know you, you don't want them to go into a money pit situation so there's you know your engineering and all that comes into play what event happened in your world that just screamed i really want to stick with real estate i would say when the crash happened i tried to get out in some manner I tried to find supplement employ you know, jobs or whatever. I mean, I was working three and four jobs during the crash. I mean, it, it was a very rough time. But I always came back to real estate because at the end of the day, I felt that I approached it uniquely and added a lot of value to people that they seemed to appreciate. Where do you see the market going right now? 
you know, based off of, you know, you've got a lot of history in this. You've seen, you know, the upside, the downside, the sideways side. Based off of today, what's your crystal ball telling you? All through COVID, we kept hearing about foreclosures, 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 and they're just not on the forefront. Mm. I'm not saying there's not any, but, you know, I was looking at stats today that we are well below the 2019 numbers on foreclosures. Have they gone up for the last two years? Yes. But part of that is because the government shut down foreclosures in 2020. 2021, right? Like right. they, you weren't allowed to have them. So of course you didn't have them, right? So they thought, well, it's going to bottleneck. You're going to have all these. And the truth is you just, there's so much equity that people, even if they're behind on payments and they're not able to make it, they can still sell and usually walk away with money. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we're looking at what the future and what the forecast of stuff is, the one thing I do not see is a, plummeting of pricing um not to say that it's not going to go down at all mm-hmm. but right now for lexington where we focused what i can say is there's still more demand than there is supply i agree to that so for those economics people out there you know everything in college was a graph rise mm-hmm. over run we go back a couple of years ago even last year um i was meeting with realtors and they were asking you know are we going to see prices go down everyone says prices are going to go down and I said, sure, but here's what you're looking at. And I was throwing out a graph and I said, sure, you, you're you're on this uphill climb with value, you know, value of the home. And we're going to see this little dip, you know, this little back set, if you will. But the difference is, is you're also going to see continuing increase in value of the home. So even though it's a breath, it's just that. It's just a little reprieve. So when you have those buyers that are saying, oh, well, the, the prices are going to go down. I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. You only have this little stitch in time that you can jump on that. And the odds are, you know, you're up against, you know, even more pressure in the market to find that good deal. So it's almost like just if you find the right house, just just do it, you know, because waiting is going to be much more costly than just moving ahead. And for sure, I was fortunate that, you know, you take a breath and hope that what you predict is is true. And it appears that that has been the case. Now, we have seen a little bit of regression which has been fantastic for some of the buyers, but at the same time, we've seen, you know, rates kind of tick up. So it, it's a mixed bag from my perspective. Yeah. Using your um, your finance vision here, where do you believe interest rates? I'm going to ask you this as a realtor. Yeah. Where do you think interest rates will fall in 2024? I was actually just looking at that. That was one of the stats that was shown. And, you know, all the big companies, Fannie Mae, all these people, are predicting that by the end of 2024 that they'll be around 6%. Some people predict even a little bit below that. I don't care what political party you're with, election years are usually good for interest rates, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're they not allowed to straight up buy votes, but they have ways of manipulating the market and stuff to make themselves look good. And it, both parties do it, and it's not, you know. So I expect to see rates improve with the election, I mm-hmm. expect, right? So I think it's going to lower. But the one thing that everybody misses on that is they go, well, we'll just wait for that to drop. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're the only person with that mindset? Absolutely not. Right. So right. you've got this, it's not a tidal wave, but there's a wave of peak buyers who are sitting on the sideline waiting for the rates to come down 1% or 1.5%. Mm-hmm. And the problem is when that happens, you're going to be back into bidding wars. Yep. So why not go ahead and, you know, if you can find the right house, right? Like, kind of like you said, we never advise people to buy the wrong house. 
right? But if you can find the right house, you can go ahead and lock in and get the appreciation during that time that you won't get if you wait. Exactly. And renting is 100% interest. And it's a huge tagline. You know, mm-hmm. why throw away 100% of your, your monthly rent versus at least gaining some appreciation, mm-hmm. you know, gaining all these good benefits that come with home ownership. What I have found more often than not is we're already in a struggle bus, if you will, as far as inventory is concerned. Sure, there's houses out there, but, you know, there's way more buyers than there are potential houses. And when you do see that one, you know, diamond come out, jump on that. Well, it's, it's to me, it's kind of like the stock market, right? Like you should never try to time the stock market because none of us is good enough to do it. You should never try to time the housing market. The reality is, is it right for your family to move right now? Right. And can you afford it with the current interest rates? Can you get a house that you want? And then you go in and create the baseline. And if we can improve your monthly rate because it goes down in a year or two, great. We'll refinance and we'll help you do that kind of stuff. But you know, if it's not the right house for you, then it doesn't matter if the interest rates one. Like, you shouldn't buy the house. Right? You're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. In this market, given what we've got, um, your expertise and everything that that you have built over you know your decades long experience of this, multiple decades of experience here, what advice would you give to a, a potential buyer or even a potential seller, given the, the current climate of the industry that we're in right now, if they were to just say, hey, give me give me like a stock tip, what would you say you know, to them? One of the things that's really true is pretty sales, right? Mm-hmm. And when it comes, you know, it's the Chip and Joanna effect that when you take a house that is, quote, Chip and Joanna looking, people are willing to overpay for it. It's a bottom line effect, right? So... I always advise our clients that are buying is look at what you can and cannot change, right? Mm-hmm. And buy the stuff where you can change it to be right. So one of the things I use all the time, people probably get tired of hearing, but it's a bad driveway, right? If you have a really bad lot with a lot of steepness to it, mm-hmm. people don't want it. They buy it when they don't have any other choices. Well, if you buy that property guess what? You have to wait until people have no other choices to get a decent a price out of it. Gotcha. So, yeah, it, it kind of comes down to that prayer. Change what you can change and hope, hope I can accept, accept yeah. the rest, right? Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, very good advice on that. So, from a realtor's perspective, you know, when you first started in this, you know, you were lone wolf. You you did it. You know, this is me. I am Nick Ralph. I am, I'm, you know going to buy and or help you buy and help you sell your house over time you have i've seen develop some amazing teams if you were to sit back and give yourself advice you know in the early days would you have said hey you should maybe get into this team thing sooner or maybe not at all i'm in a transition period as you know um at the moment and and working out of a partnership and into others and I've been very blessed with some amazing team members. And the reason we created the team was I was ahead of the curve when it came to internet marketing and I would get leads and different opportunities. And I don't like dual agency, not a fan of it. I don't believe that I can represent both the seller and the buyer, you know, evenly and equally kind of thing. Like you're, 
it's not that you're necessarily favoring someone, but if you're not able to do the full job from both people, then you're not doing what you're supposed to getting paid to do. Right. Right. And then the state statutes literally say things that I have to tell you when I work for just you, I can no longer tell you if I work for both people. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I can't tell anything that that, that harmed my client. Well, if it harms one, it helps the other. Right. So I just don't like that role. So one of the reasons I created the team was to have qualified, you know, trained people to handle these potential buyers. Right. Okay. So then I could train on, qualify the people and get stuff done. And then they would go show it. I knew they were taking care of them the same way. That way they were still doing it. I wasn't making as much money, but people were still being taken care of. Our sellers were being taken care of. And we had all that aspect to it. I love that aspect. And I trust me, I've had tons of friends. He's like, why do you have a team? Like you'd make more money if you didn't. And it's probably true because we spent a lot of money on marketing systems, everything that we have. But I enjoy being around people, um, small teams aspect. I'm actually an introvert um, at art, but if it's small groups, I love it. And so being able to live into uh, an upcoming agent and hopefully teach them and give them some of the you know experience that I've learned over the years and to guide them from one transaction to the next and even help them get started, that part is something that fulfills me. I am... A potential client of yours. And I am wanting you to go above and beyond for me. Now, this is almost a trick question. Just yeah. FYI, yeah, put it yeah. in out there. What would I as your client or what should I as your client do to get the most out of Nick? So that answer probably varies based on seller or buyer, right? So on seller, I think the number one thing is communication. Uh, as much as anything, it's the number one complaint about listing agents is that they sign the paperwork, put sign the yard, and then people don't hear from them, right? So we do everything we can to have weekly conversations at minimum mm-hmm. um, and always be available for our people. But even in the middle of a deal, if I just call and say, hey, Martin, we have the inspection Thursday. You know that. We're still waiting on stuff. I got nothing else to tell you, but we are on top of things. Gotcha. Right? It just mm-hmm. makes people feel better and has it. So it gives them a smoother process. And that's our goal is to smooth the process out as much as we can with the exception of we're working with people and we can't predict what they're going to do. Right. So unfortunately people mess things up, but outside of that, we try to make the process as smooth as we can. Um, On the buying side, it's transparency. I think, Um, well, actually probably on both sides is we have to build trust. So whatever it takes for the client to, get to a point to where they fully trust us mm-hmm. is what we need to achieve, right? Because once you trust us, you'll open up and give us your real goals. Before that, most people just say, well, I want to buy a house. Well, why do you want it? And they kind of tell you the truth, but they don't, right? And then you find out that there's they're expecting a kid and it's actually going to be here, you know, in four months and they want to be in early. And, all, and then, so all of a sudden there's more urgency mm-hmm. than you told us originally and stuff like that. So right. I think the transparency of realizing our goal is just to be part of your story, but we're on your team, right? Like I had an agent or a client the other day, I wasn't available. So one of my team members was able to go show it. And my client was like, so who am I meeting with? Is it your team member? Or is it the listing agent? And I was like, nope, this is Penny. She's team Andy. You know, I was like, that's exactly how I worded it, right? So that right. he knew anything he needed to say to her, he could. 
let me put a little bit more of a clarity on it. So let's flip this. Okay. What should your clients do in order to get the most out of you? I know that that sounds like, well, I give my best to every client, right? Mm-hmm. But let's face it, some clients are pains in the butt because they don't know what to, what do. to do or what not to yeah. do. And they're kind of fumbling through it. So me being your client, what's the best thing I can do as a seller and the best thing I can do as a buyer? It kind of goes back into the trust thing, right? Is be intentional about meeting with us prior to when you need us. People love to wait till the last minute to contact a realtor mm-hmm. and say, okay, I've got my ducks in a row. Let's go. And it's like, no, let's talk three months before, six months before. All right. Let me add value to your life. Right. Let me add value to your process. I was like, yes, is it easier? Do I make more money per hour if you wait to the end to call me? Maybe. But it was like, it's not the process we want, right? Mm-hmm. We, you're not going to get the full experience if you wait to the end because you're not going to trust us the way we need you to trust us. Absolutely. And I agree to that wholeheartedly. In order to succeed, I feel, in this industry, the experience is 90% of it. You know, the economics and the numbers, it is what it is. But the feeling you have going in, during, and after, that is what makes this, I mm-hmm. think, um, it, it turns it from a job to a career mm-hmm. for us, and mm-hmm. at least for me. Um, I like to see folks happy, ultimately, and not only happy with you know their indecision, but with just, just reflection over, wow, this was a really good process, mm-hmm. so that they feel comfortable, and I've, I feel like I have contributed to society in my neighborhood that way. Yeah. Because one of the things we do is we love to have buyer consults, right? Mm-hmm. And that are purely teaching. All we're doing is teaching the process, teaching the contract, teaching the process. So that as you get going, and we've had so many clients reach out and just say, I feel so much better about going to look at homes now. Because if it's done properly, then you can enjoy looking at the house, right? Yep. It's fun. Because you're not worried why you're looking at, well, what do I have to do? When do I have to have money? When do I have to, like, you know that stuff up front. And once you're you're taught the process, then you get to actually enjoy it. I agree. You know, get, get all of the work behind you. You know, you mm-hmm. know you've done the work. You've, you've got the details yep. kind of ironed out already. Yep. I agree. I, I feel very strongly about that as well. And during the process, we often have consultations in the very beginning of the first contract. So like, you know, we, we try to explain, here's what the financing is going to look like, but you don't really, I think, put it in your memory or in, you know, in your thought process until it's real and reality hits whenever there's ink on paper. Oh, this, whoa, this is real. Yeah, this is real. And at that moment, we, we want to kind of rehash everything that we've gone over and say, okay, here's the start to finish, you know, genre that we need to look at. And we can affect these things, change these other things. And this other stuff is just the way. So making it all make sense and be picture perfect, you know, try to give as much clarity as we can and ultimately let them know. It's like, even if it's not clear today, it's a little hazy. It's okay. Uh In a couple of days, we come back and we do it again and do it again until it is crystal clear. I mean, ultimately, I want them to know more about the process than I do. A couple of reasons. It, It makes my job easier, but it is going to make their life so much you know, more pleasant throughout the whole process. Uh, sounds like you guys do a very similar mm-hmm. style of, of uh, try to people fight it, but we try. <laughs> well, I, I can see why they why they might, and it comes down to how far do you trust people, and are you willing to trust? 
Because let's face it, it, we live in a time where you don't know what's real. No. And it's very difficult to to take somebody's hand and say, they're going to guide me and they're going to have my best interest mm-hmm. in heart. So how do how do we cut through the crap so that people understand, you know, we do care. And it's not, I guess this is the other part, that there are always stop signs. You know, there's always yield signs. And in the process, if, if you're not feeling comfortable, you're not going to offend by asking questions. In fact, the questions help you know, bring about the clarity and the trust. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I don't know how far people are willing to, to engage in the work that is necessary to develop that. It's ironically, I think we've almost made it too easy to accumulate the largest debt you're ever going to have. Right. Because re- realistically, somebody can just go online, apply for a mortgage, sign, you know, all their applications, they can go online and they can look at a bunch of photos, contact an agent, write a contract, and then literally you can buy a house without ever going to see it. And you can sign stuff remotely and do it all. Like it's gotten simple enough that people feel like they can just control it and they can just do it. And there's so much more to the process, right? Like it's one of those that the it's been... The sales pitch from the industry is that we're going to give you all the power back and we're going to just make it easy and transactional. Mm-hmm. And the reality is they've removed the relationship part to where someone's actually guiding, right? Is that the public has heard that they can do it, mm-hmm. that they have all the tools. But the truth is, I, I mean, there's a lot of tools that you can hand me that I don't know how to use, right? Right. Like, I can hand you a hammer and, you know, whatever. And if you're not equipped to know how to use it, then you're just going to hurt somebody. And in real estate, if you're not equipped to walk through those processes, you're going to hurt your family. True. Okay. So let's think of it this way. If you've got the, the good intentions that you're going to buy a house and the purpose of that house is the fundamental, okay, I got a roof and I'm providing, I've got you know, a, a way to make some, you know, wealth for me and my yeah. family over time. You School district. Yeah, the, the basic mm-hmm. stuff. You know, if you're going through that, I feel it's a lot easier to develop the relationship because people want to know that they've, they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, when you care more, you do, do you just, you Stand ask those out. questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we flip the narrative so much? Because some, some folks may have, you know, in their, in their, Earnest of hearts, you know, that's what they think they're doing, but let's just say that they haven't quite popped the clutch in their, in their brain. You know, it it just hasn't clicked to that. Hey, wait a minute. Maybe you do need to ask this question. Maybe you should think a little bit deeper. And it's almost like, how do you take the arrogance out? And it's, I'll tell you the best compliment I've ever received was from a client that I sold his house. They moved out of town. They moved back in town. He used a different agent, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And he was thrilled with how we worked, right? But he moved back in town, used somebody from their church, and he ran into me and he walked up and he said, I'm sorry. And I was like, for what? And he was like, I didn't realize how good you were until I used someone else, right? Right. And I was just like, I had to be snubbed for him to understand it. And it's one of those of knowing the differences. And I think, you know, transparency seems to be the the title of this podcast, apparently, because I think that's part of it is we have to be transparent up front online mm-hmm. to let them see who we really are. Right. Right. 
and let them see who our clients are and how they've responded and and be vulnerable to go ahead and put that out there in the forefront and then be willing to invest the time to build that trust. Hmm. Okay. Well, so like you said, you do a lot of online mm-hmm. uh, lead generations and I would assume that a, a vast majority of your business has developed from that. Oh, and of course, over time, you've got repeat business and such. Yep. But um, in order to keep you know the machine fed, you have to keep reaching out there. And I would assume that most people that are in this industry would say that online leads have become the most difficult to nurture because you can just you know, point, click, fill out some information and vanish, you know, which happens quite often. Now, there are a few, you know, like one in 20 that will eventually say, hey, I actually want your help. I'm not just a figment of your imagination. I'm not just filling this out because I'm bored on a Saturday night kind of thing. So in in that 19 out of the 20, you know, how do we or how how do you better develop your personality online so that they know that you're actually a person and not to necessarily waste your time or to go down this road if they're not willing to continue the, the yeah. journey? So it's funny. Maybe it's the engineering side of me is I view those numbers all as challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Of If somebody comes and registers they're going to know what, that I'm a real person. Like it's, you know, I've always been driven to show that and prove that and put it out there. And I mean, right now we're going through a series of video, edit, you know, creation that we've brought a videographer on to create these shorts to be able to send to people and and just show them and tell them and say, look, our goal is not to sell you. I don't care when you buy. This is what I'm trying to do. If, if that's of interest, respond. If, you know, do this and do that. And you're never going to get everybody and because not everybody's actually looking to buy. All the numbers have to be adjusted to account for, you know, my wife was a nurse at UK for 18 years. And she would tell me over and over and over how many times, you know, she'd walk up to a computer and it would just have Elbar or Zillow or one of these websites of people searching homes. They They weren't consider moving they would just like to look at homes Mm -hmm. and that's fine right so it was like i think the number one mistake agents make with internet leads is they try to force their timeline on the client right i got you like my timeline doesn't matter like it's not their job to be ready to buy for me it's my job to and the sad part, it makes it really hard to get them to tell me the truth of what their timeline is. Mm. And that's what, you know, the number one thing we say to people is, if I can find out your timeline, I know how to help you. Gotcha. And that makes good sense. And I would agree to that. I I can see how when you're in this position in the industry and you are reaching out trying to create internet leads, you know, there's money being spent there to create this traffic. Mm-hmm. And you want to see some return on investment, number one. Number two, if you are you know, ready to work, you're ready to work. It's like, I, give me work. I want to work, you know. And sometimes the work is wait. You know, sometimes the answer mm-hmm. is not now. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and thank you for putting it out there very, very plainly. I appreciate that. Um, I think a lot of folks are going to appreciate this podcast for what, what great nuggets that are in there. Uh, sure. Sometimes they just want to hear what they're thinking, you know, they're, they're, it's in the back of their brain, but they mm-hmm. can't just articulate it to be 
it's just a matter of time. <laughs> no. That's a lot of cases it is. From a perspective of where we are in the market now, knowing that we're going to see interest rates go down. So let's think about this, you know, forward thinking. Anticipate. Anticipate. Yeah, next year, we're going to see lower interest rates. We've already got a ton of people that are sitting on the fence right now. And if interest rates were, quote unquote, a little bit lower, they'd be buying it up, right? So they're getting ready to buy up what little stock we have. Obviously, you would think, hey, we need more inventory, which is always like the, the realtor's mantra. We need more inventory. What do you feel is the best answer here moving forward? You know, how do we plan for this? Or do we just buckle up and get ready for multiple offers again? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have to be prepared for multiple offers again. I mean, there's a, they're still happening um, with the nice, you know, with the pretty home as I got like, if it's desired and it looks cute and people don't feel like they have to do anything, they're still getting multiple, multiple offers on those properties, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what's driving the prices up. The price reductions are from excessive overpricing. Um, they didn't overprice it by five grand. They're overpricing it by 20, 25 grand kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the market's going, you're too high and they'll wait. But, or just too much work, right? Or a defect that they're not willing to overlook. Um, whether it be a horrible layout, whether it be a bad lot or, you know, whatever it may be. And so if it's truly market ready and done, then it's and price right, it's still selling with usually multiple offers. But if it's a situation to where nobody's guided the seller into how to prepare their house and do it, because two years ago, I, I mean, for the last three years, or I've told people over and over, if you just want an offer on your house or a contractor on your house, just go put a for sale sign out front. You'll have one by tomorrow. I said, but if you want to maximize price, if you want to know how to go about that process, you want to know how to prepare your house, that's what I'm here for. And it always gets your sellers off guard because it's like they don't expect agents to give them an option of just do it yourself, right? right. Because, but if you don't know how what lenders can actually get things done, what questions to ask to the lender on those things, how to negotiate and navigate through the inspection period. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we've seen for sub owners spend $15,000 on repairs when none of it was really necessary. You know, if that person hadn't bought it, the next person would have like, but they gave away 15 grand, which was more than commission would have ever been. So they more than lost on the deal. It seems to me that, you know, we're going to be up against it one way or the other. Um, Getting back into spec homes, I mean, do you see on the horizon builders actually bringing back the spec home heavy? They would love to, but they're just not there. And the problem is all the spec homes that are on the market are in the same price point, right? They're pretty much all fall between four and 600, which is the one segment of the inventory that isn't that undersupplied, right? Like it's still not even, I mean, there's, there's more buyers and sellers, but it, there's more in that segment than there is anywhere else. And builders are, ha- because of the cost of building, they're having a hard time building anything under 400. If okay. they could afford to build a $250,000 house, we'd sell 100 of them tomorrow. Hmm. So is that going to bring about unique building types like container houses? I mean, what are we looking at? Very likely. I mean, it just, and that's one, you know, what builders locally are willing to, go through that and what zoning changes or issues are we going to have with them? Because, you know, Lexton's planning and zoning isn't always the most flexible. Right. I'm seeing a a huge uptick in the barn dominium style. 
Yeah, they tend to be, and you can touch on this, but financing, I've been told, is very uh, tricky on them. It, yes, it can be. Yeah. Um, what I have found most recently about the Barn Dominium style is they're actually, I guess, um, sorry, I would to say it, they are building it more to a stick-built code mm -hmm. with a massive attached garage. So when they do it like that, all of a sudden, it, it seems to fit all the guidelines. Yeah. Now, if you look at it from just the standard, yes, as a barn or a big container setup, it, yes, it's very difficult to get it uh, financed traditionally. So it makes it very tricky. But I have seen these others fall into line. In fact, we can even do one-time closes on these barn dominiums. The problem is, is that they're, they're booked up. Most of the builders that are doing this, they don't have a lot of extra room. You know, to, yeah. to keep bringing on new clients. Yeah. So I'm very impressed and hats off to these guys that, you know, kind of figured out, I can build this, get it financed and people want it. Yeah. You know, if you can put all that together, holy crap, you know, oh, they yeah. got it together. The traditional quote unquote barn dominium that you see on HGTV. Yeah. Now that's almost impossible. <laughs> yeah. So what's the difference? What's the big educators? Um, okay. So if you look at a stick built house, it's just that, you know, you've got your, um, you know, 16 inch centers, you're typically, you know, wood construction. It'll have, mm -hmm. you know, and I've seen them throw metal siding on the outside of it to make it look more quote unquote barn, but it is built like a standard house is, you know, trusses and all yeah. that. If you go through the standard, what you were seeing in the very beginning, barn dominium, oftentimes you would see it was more of a, best way to describe it would be like a, a large commercial garage, almost like it would, it would be built out of steel, mm -hmm. um, not really residential if you know what i mean and then they would throw in you know what would technically be an office and turn that into living space so when you you're going you're reading the book from the back it's a little bit different than saying no we're going to build this as an actual house and put on a garage versus it's a garage we're going to put a living space in it and that is where i feel the biggest separation in, in the financing ability has been gotcha. because they'll look at it and say no this is more of a commercial building if you want to do it as a commercial loan no problem but you want to do the Fannie Freddie uh, standard style residential home. No, doesn't quite fit. And they tend to back off. Now, getting a third-party lender out there, you know, that becomes, you know, the road mm -hmm. to hoe. You have to be able to plead your case, give them the planning, the specs. You know, sometimes you can get an exception. Sometimes you can't. But more often than not, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. When you're up against um, buyers and sellers, do you feel having a team gives you a expressed edge or a disadvantage? Um, depends on the opportunity to explain my team. Okay. Um, people have preconceptions of them, right? I will tell you my perception um, from being in the market is that most teams are just a collective of agents. Not really a team. Just, Not really a team. Just a group of people that can fall back on each other. And they put their numbers together and, you know, they might share some leads or some costs and that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you, our team, you know, one of our mantras is once someone hires one of us, they hire all of us, right? Now, from a legal standpoint, that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm representing you, that's it. But if I need help with something, if I'm, you know... My kid had an appointment in Cincinnati last week, right? I'm up there. Client wants to see a house that just comes on the market. You know, if I'm working by myself, you're waiting the next day or I'm calling Joe Smo or asking favors, doing whatever. 
with the team is there's an inherent expectation within the team to help each other out, gotcha. right? Mm-hmm. Because we know whenever so-and-so goes on vacation, I got you. I got your clients. I'm going to treat them just like they're my clients. And, do, and we know the same processes, the same systems. You know, we use the same language on contracts, all that stuff. Gotcha. So here's a controversial one. What do you think about the new L-Bar contracts? It's too long, but I love it. Okay. There's a lot of definition and defining, and I understand why it's there, but um, it makes it feel overwhelming for people. And I don't, I'm not an attorney and I don't know how to fix these things. And the attorney that wrote it is my attorney. He's who I hired to do stuff. Right. Right. So I think he's, you know, it was wonderful. But the thing I'm most excited to see in there is that earnest money turns hard is the terminology they use it. Right. Right. That once we get past inspections, it's in the buyer's gone. I've always said, I think earnest money should be non-refundable regardless and people okay. struggle with that, right? It was like, well, inspection and all this. I'm like, there's always exception. The seller's taking their house off the market to give you first right of buying it. There should be compensation for doing that if you don't fulfill the comp, right? Right, and that's how I understand earnest money to exactly. be defined. Right. Exactly, right? So now what would happen then, right? Money, Artist money would probably go down. Mm-hmm. People would probably start offering less, but then the seller would actually know, okay, well, if you don't buy this, I'm getting $800, $1,000, 2000 or whatever the number might be. We probably wouldn't see the twenty, forty, and $50,000 earnest monies very often. But it would actually make people put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Okay. And so at least with the new one, once the inspections, that's true. Because, I mean, I recently had a contract where two days before closing, the buyer just said, I'm done. Nothing was wrong. Just walked away. Just said the lender's asking too personal of a question, so I'm done. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah, that that's sort of an upfront statement. I'm going to know, or any lender mm-hmm. is going to know, you know, your your hobbies. But mm-hmm. you tell them to me you're not, because it's your statement. I'm going to know where you spend your money. No. Now, to that end, you know, I don't dig into that aspect of it. I simply yeah. look just to make sure that guess what. It is consistent. Yeah, I I don't care where, what, when, any of that. Now they're trying to make an argument that, um, you know, they had a financing contingency and we're going back and forth on things. Mm -hmm. Whereas the new contract, it would be done. Like there would be no question. Okay. So what about the, the feeling that it gives you? And what I mean by that is because of the way it is written, opinion has you know, reached my ears that it, it, it makes the the whole buying process almost adversarial. Buyer, seller are now at odds, even though they're agreeing to those odds. Whereas the old ones, it was just more of a, hey, I want to buy your house, cool, you're buying my house. It was, it was a little more lighter, obviously. But have you heard anything like that? Or no, can you I, see that? I can't see that at all. That's all presentation to me. You have a contract. And it doesn't matter if I write it on a napkin here and we all sign it. The reality is there's terms in a contract that we agree to and we move forward. It's got actually has some pro seller sides to this one that the old one did not. I think people are just used to a certain one and they don't like change. Nobody likes change. And I would say this is a much more fair contract 
for both okay. parties than what the previous ones have been. So I personally am excited at the change. So gotcha. And, and I have to ask, you know, obviously the realtors about this because you guys are the ones that see the contract mm-hmm. the most. Most people like myself, yeah, I see them. If I wanted to go out and buy, an, a, buy a house and I wasn't in the industry, I would see a contract maybe twice in my life, right? So for from that perspective, how do I know or nor care the difference that you guys have yes. created? But, you know, you've always got water cooler talk, if you will. I would say the reason for that is probably the length of it. You know, it just the longer a contract gets, the more complicated it feels. Mm-hmm. When in reality, there's probably six pages of definitions, right? Right. And I mean, all you're doing is clarifying things. That's all it really is intended to do. Right. I mean, that's the purpose of it. Um, is there a particular type of house you like to show more than another? Is it more fun to show like the million dollar houses, obviously? I mean, think about it. I like unique houses. So probably older? No. Like settings where people have been creative. Like uh, a couple of years ago, I showed a house and the people had taken a swing set slide and had actually attached it to the house or to the deck. Oh. So, like, the kids okay. would just run up the deck. And, like, they would go and play by. It was part of the house. Yeah. Like, nice. and I mean, it was a fairly long slide. So, stuff like that is kind of cool to me. We have a typical house for Lexington, nothing extravagant. and But, you know, we back up to green space and stuff like that. So, I've shown a lot of million-dollar homes that I would not trade my house for. Right. So price point doesn't really motivate me as much as unique settings, features. I get more excited about a hidden pantry than I do, you know, an extra 9,000 square foot house. Like, makes sense because it's, I like things that my, I guess my engineering side, I like useful things. And that would fall under the, the hidden. Yeah. Not expected. Mm -hmm. Good use of space. Mm -hmm. Is there any area within Kentucky that you, feel more comfortable in showing or less comfortable in going to? So with our team, we basically cover Fayette County, Lexington, of course, and then the counties that touch it. We try to limit it pretty much to that. We'll have some exceptions just outside there. I'm from Montgomery County, so obviously I know it and happy to go there if I need. Um, We try not to venture a long ways from that because we don't know that market, and we'd much rather use some of the partners that we've built over the years to give people the same experience, but with more knowledge than I can provide you. All right. Anything that you would like to add to advice and your perspectives or just things you want people to be aware of? You should expect a lot out of your agent. Whatever your expectations for your agent are, probably should be 20% higher, if not more, right? Especially on the selling side. I think people, we're not repair people. I'm not you know, necessarily coming in to fix your house or do different things, but being able to be a resource for you and all things should be true, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to guide you without making you feel like a burden should be true. I did a study or I did a online question once and asked people to pick one of the three agents, right? If you're picking your next agent, do you want the number one agent for the area, the agent that knows the most knowledge about your neighborhood or the agent who makes you feel like the only client they have or the agent that gets you the most money. That was the other one. Wow. That's a, that's good questions, but it would ultimately be very dependent upon a lot of different things. 
if I had just won the lottery and I was moving out of town and didn't care one way or the other, I want the most money. I don't care. You know, this is what it is. If I'm wanting to build a life in this neighborhood, you know, and I want to buy and sell all at mm-hmm. the same time, being and I, and I was naive to the process and I needed that that extra information, that extra mm-hmm. pat on the back. Then yeah, I want someone that I'm the only person in their world. Now, where it gets really bad is what if they're just a really crappy agent, but I'm the only person in their world. Oh, now what? You know, now it, it, it mm-hmm. even though yeah, I'm I'm at your beck and call or vice versa. It, it's what am I getting? You yeah. know that so that sucks. So you kind of want this combination of all of it. Yeah, and the only way to get that is to really dive in and make sure that your agent is worth their salt. That's a great point. I was blown away. Being a former engineer, I had one answer, and the correct answer for Nick was, if I'm hiring you to sell my house, I want the most money. Mm-hmm. I don't. We don't need to be friends tomorrow. Those kind of like when I hire someone to fix my car, you know, the engine, fix my engine. Yeah, like I'm paying you for a service. That was it. And it really opened my eye. I did this years and years ago, right? It really opened my eyes up to how relational it is because one person out of, I um, had 70 or 80 people reply to this thing. One person said they wanted the most money. Every single person except for it, you know, picked, want to be, feel like the only agent or only client that agent had. Wow. That's it. That was, I mean, it was not even close. So, it's actually forced me to change kind of the the internal motto of our team. And, and we say it all the time, and it, it, I said it so much that the team finally started going, you know that thing you say? It's, <laughs> it was that my goal is to sell a house every single day, right? Mm-hmm. But it's to make sure everyone feel like the only client that year. Because then if we sell a house every single day, we can offer resources and do things for our clients that nobody else can do. But if I work with you and I sell you a house, but you feel like just a number in a Rolodex, you don't care. You feel used and you're going to use me one time and be done. And like you said, a lot of our business came from internet marketing. I mean, when I started here, I'm not from Lexington. I had no roots here. I had no family here. I could not depend on anybody. At this point, we've sold over 1,100 homes in my career. And a lot of that's from internet marketing. But at this point, over 50% of our yearly sales come from repeat clients because we made them feel special. And I will give you the firsthand you know, from my perspective, that that is what we want to portray in our business. It's we want you to feel like you accidentally bought a house. We want you to be the happiest people on the street. And sometimes it backfires because, like you said in the very beginning, it's like sometimes we make the process a little too easy, you know, and then we're setting them up for failure on their second round. Mm-hmm. It's like we had a, a, a fellow came in and he went through the motions. We had him in his house. I didn't tried and tried to you know, break through, you know, this really hard exterior to just try to get him to, you know, have a good conversation. And it was very difficult. He just wanted the transactions. Like, okay. Transactions done. Two weeks. We're done, you know, and signed papers and he's on his way. And I'm like, man, you are so going to feel it whenever you sell this house is I don't think you're going to come back around to the same feeling. You know, I hope he does have that mm-hmm. same, but it's just, what are the odds? Yep. You know, yep. and mm-hmm. it's, it's fun. <laughs> we can see how it goes. 
Well, that's about all the time we've got for today. Nick, thank you very much for coming on the show today. We've got to have you back on here again and continue this conversation. This has been Making Home Happen. If you are a professional with ties to the real estate world and you'd like to be my guest, shoot me an email over to myloan at martinblair.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.